Thanks very much to uh, Tamsin and Ben for inviting me. Um, I'm a, a reader in historical geography, um, so I bought a map. Now, usually, I gnash my teeth uh, when I run, I run interdisciplinary seminars, and when non-geographers come up and say, and there are geographers in the room who know this, some say, hey, as your geographers, I've bought you a map, but I thought I'd do the same, because actually the map is, is in a sense essential to what I want to talk about this evening. So the, the paper I'm going to give um, relates to a, um, a much a, a bigger project. The reason I'm uh, in Oxford this year, uh, at least the first half of this year, is to try and finish off a book which is concerned with um, uh, the relationship basically between Caribbean slavery or slavery in the Atlantic world more generally, um, geographical knowledge about Africa and uh, the British Empire in the Atlantic world. And, and essentially the book is concerned with analysing um, different sets of geographical claims that are made about West Africa uh, and how these are implicated in a series of different and sometimes competing agendas. So how they become bound up with uh, the anti-slavery campaign, projects for colonialism, legitimate commerce, um, debates around uh, Britain's humanitarian role, uh, as well as, as, as questions around science and what counts as scientific knowledge. Now, although these claims are centred on West Africa, um, the sources and consequences of these and also the kind of the broader projects to which they relate are uh, at least circum-Atlantic in, in, in character and the, the Caribbean is a key site in, in the story uh, I want to tell. Uh, and in, in kind of more intellectual terms, um, the project stands at the intersection of two main, two main, two main fields. On the one hand, um, histories of science and knowledge. Um, and in a sense, this is not a, I'm not going to present you a kind of, this is not a discourse analysis, this is not Orientalism in Africa, it's, that's not the approach that interests me. This is a kind of a history of science approach, so my question, concerns around epistemology, practice and knowledge. And on the other hand, um, histories are of, of slavery, of abolition and empire uh, in, in, in the Atlantic world. Now, one way of um, sort of setting out the parameters to the broader project is to explain the chronology. Not necessarily quite this one. The paper I want to give this evening is, is slightly uh, shorter. But basically the project as a whole, the book as a whole, which I, I call the book, the book I, I plan the, the book to be entitled The Armchair, uh, the Armchair Explorer. Um, the chronological focus of the broader project is the 1780s to the late 1830s, early 1840s. And, you know, uh, as everyone says about the period of time that interests them, I find it absolutely fascinating. And uh, for those of you, uh, obviously, you know, this is Bailey's Imperial Meridian. This is a period characterised by uh, a whole series of concurrent, and I argue in the book, interlinked chronologies. So just to give uh, two. Uh, this is the period that historians uh, would refer to as the age of abolition. This is the period that sees the emergence, the institutionalization of uh, uh, the British uh, abolitionist campaign, focusing initially obviously on involvement uh, in transatlantic slave trading uh, with the British Abolition Act passed in 1807. Uh, then there's a, a focus on, in a sense, the verification of abolition uh, through the, um, the campaigns around uh, registration in the 1810s. And then from the early 1820s, we see a move towards uh, emancipation as the central uh, focus for the, the anti-slavery campaign. Uh, and the Emancipation Act is passed in 1833, and which brings to a kind of formal end to slavery in the British Empire in the 1830s. Now, this period, this period of time, I think, is, is very usefully thought of in the way that Catherine Hall describes it as a war of representation. Essentially, not simply as a, as a, as a period characterised by politics, whether that be elite politics or broader uh, uh, politics, but also, in essentially, as a period of cultural politics, of pamphleteering, of poetry, poetry of 
of, of, of representations seeking to frame uh, slavery in different ways, uh, ultimately from the perspective of the anti-slavery campaign to bring about its end, but also, of course, from the perspective of those with interests in wedded to the maintenance of slavery to try and uh, slow down that process and win as much compensation as possible. This period of time, sort of 1780s to the early late 1830s, is also um, the period that Philip Curtin calls the classic age of West African exploration. Now, he, 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 the, the time period he gives this is 1790 to 1830. I think we would want to loosen that slightly. This is the period where, in Britain and in Europe more generally, there is a, a renewed interest in the what we might think of as the, the, the physical and the political geography of West Africa. Um, it witnesses the foundation of the African Association, um, notably involving Joseph Banks, uh, which sends a private organisation which begins to send out explorers. The idea being that these will then bring back uh, sufficient uh, information, both scientific and commercial, which can then be used to persuade the British government to invest in, in larger projects. Um, Mungo Park travels to West Africa, is sent out uh, in uh, the mid-1790s, which is essentially the beginning of this time period. Um, and this period is brought to an end, if you want, in 1830, uh, according to Curtin, with the solution to the Niger problem. And I'll explain what that is in a minute. But essentially, an expedition, a British expedition by Richard and John Landers, travels down the remaining part of the River Niger into the Atlantic Ocean. And this is then this is seen as solving, from a European perspective, of course, the problem, the key problem in this period, which is where did the River Niger start, where did it go, and where did it end? And that is a scientific question, but it's also crucially a commercial question, and those motives are always interlinked. Um, the African Association is no longer as significant by the 1820s, late 1810s, 1820s, and at that point, in a sense, the baton of the promotion of exploration has been taken up by the British government, the Admiralty, the Colonial Office, and of course, as I'm sure you know, it's not just in Africa that this is taking place, it's also in the Arctic. And there are clear parallels, in a sense, between the cracking of the Niger problem and the quest for the Northwest Passage, you know, and the same individuals are involved. This period of time, also crucially, um, it, it, it's you know, it's a period of political unrest and reform. It's a period of industrialization. It's the Romantic Age, and all these things are uh, overlap in some interesting ways. But from my own perspective, the the other thing that characterizes this period from the 1780s to the early 1830s is that it's the moment that I think we can argue we see the institutionalization of something we could call modern British geography. Now, I don't mean that as an academic discipline. That's something that takes place uh, much later in the 19th century. But I do mean, in essentially, as a self-conscious uh, discourse, as a way of producing knowledge about the world, associated with particular sets of practices, particular representational forms, and particular institutions. The Geographical Society of London is founded in 1830, the Royal Geographical Society, and the key institutional forerunner for the RGS is the African Association, founded at the beginning of this period. Men like John Barrow, second Secretary of the Admiralty, who's the key mover and shaker uh, within British exploratory activity post-Napoleonic Wars, is the chairman and one of the key founding figures for the Royal Geographical Society. As well as seeing a kind of an institutionalization of something that we can call a modern British geography, we also see in this period, in a sense, a changing sense of what counts as geographical information and how that can be produced. And um, Robert Mayhew, uh, who was uh, here at Oxford for a long time, worked with uh, Jack Langton, I think, um, argues that this is a transitional moment that sees a shift away from a way of knowing the world primarily through texts to a way of knowing the world 
primarily in terms of the, the field. And that might seem an obvious thing to say, you know, that geography is a, a subject that something, has something to do with the field. But actually, at this period, that is still something that's being fought over and in, in, in quite contentious ways. So, um, my way of investigating through these kind of interlinked chronologies um, is through a, a, a kind of a biographical approach. The links between them, uh, I should just make clear, are, are numerous. Um, the links, in a sense, between the exploration of West Africa and the emergence of geography, I, I, I hope that would be reasonably clear. But the links between, in a sense, the debate about slavery, the Great War of Representation over slavery, and um, the exploration of West Africa are also numerous. So, for example, um, it's in this period we begin to see the emergence of the notion of legitimate commerce as an alternative to British and, indeed, other European involvement in Africa emerging. And central to that idea of legitimate commerce is ways of knowing Africa economically and uh, environmentally. Um, the humanitarians are, uh, of course, want to stamp their presence on Africa to establish Sierra Leone and, and Liberia and essentially as alternatives to uh, the West Indies. And again, geographical knowledge and ways of knowing Africa become central to that. But finally, within the kind of broad debate about uh, slavery, the question, in a sense, the question of who is the African and what is the place, what is Africa, is, is sort of part and parcel of it. You know, what, who, who are Africans, what, what is their nature, their moral, their political, or their intellectual nature. And again, the accounts produced by travellers like, for example, Mungo Park, who is uh, quoted in Parliament by both sides, supporters and defenders of the slave trade, is, is kind of a crucial source of information. So we have then a series of kind of entanglements between uh, geographical knowledge, uh, um, uh, questions about slavery, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so on. And my way of navigating through this is by focus on an individual, uh, a man called James McQueen, someone who's kind of been haunting me for some time now and hopefully I will put him to rest quite soon. Um, I've given some a little bit of information about McQueen on, uh, this is normally where you show the picture of him, unfortunately none exists, but I, I can give you some, something about his early life uh, on the handouts. Um, Scottish, spends his early life crucially working in the Caribbean as a uh, overseer on a slave plantation, later as a manager of, uh, on that same plantation. Sent, returns to Scotland, settles in Glasgow, becomes a merchant, and it's, it's through his, his, his mercantile activities that he essentially provides his livelihood. Uh, in 1820, and this is something I'll come back to, he approaches the British government with some commercial proposals for the development, for the establishment of a chartered West African company. Mm -hmm. That's crucial. Now, McQueen was a, um, uh, a famous 19th century geographer who correctly argued that the River Niger flowed to the Atlantic a decade before this was proven by on-the-spot European explorers. Now, this is, of course, beside the fact that the African people who lived in this part of the world would have known damn well where the river went. But from a European perspective, that's not proven until 1830. But McQueen is making this argument ten years before. And this is despite the fact that he never went anywhere near Africa in his life. Now, he was a former manager of a Caribbean plantation, and his earliest knowledge about African geography derived from the slaves he encountered in the Caribbean, which is essentially what I want to talk about this evening. Later, he settled in Glasgow, uh, became a newspaper editor, uh, and uh, uh, became a high-profile critic of the British anti-slavery campaign. He's one of the most vitriolic and vituperative uh, pro-slavery pamphleteers in this period. You know, without wanting to make a crude uh, historical comparison, Fox News, perfect place for him today. He would be a climate change denier and a very effective one. That, that's the politics. We're talking ultra-Tory, 
good at being scandalous, good at sowing doubt, which is essentially all he needed to do to delay things. He was also an outspoken advocate for the colonisation of Africa, and he deployed geographical knowledge to further these agendas. And the broader project is about the claims he made about Africa and the responses and the counterclaims from uh, the government officials, from merchants, from anti-slavery campaigners, from explorers and from other geographers. And the aim in doing this is to sort of demonstrate how geographical facts, theories, practices, representations were central to contemporary debates about empire, slavery uh, and scientific knowledge. That's what the book I hope will look like. Um, it's essentially in two parts. Chapters two to four are about the sources of McQueen's Niger theory. Uh, where does it come from? Uh, and it seeks to locate uh, his uh, <coughs> claims about Africa in the context of uh, existing geographical knowledge and practices, uh, also within his uh, uh, particular ways of thinking about economies. He's a mercantilist, and that's important. There's, uh, there's some interesting links between knowing the world through geography and thinking about the world as, an, as a mercantilist. And then in chapter four is about the importance of enslaved people in this story, which I want to talk about this evening. And then the second part of the book, chapters five to seven, are about the kind of, kind of course of his theory, where it goes, um, how it relates to broader questions about credibility in the Atlantic world, the way in which it's deployed to make to articulate particular arguments around Sierra Leone uh, and to attack Sierra Leone, which is obviously intimately associated with the abolitionists, and then how his ideas get picked up quite surprisingly by the abolitionists, uh, specifically by Buxton, Thomas Fowler Buxton, and form the basis for the Niger expedition of 1841-42, which I'll come back to. So although um, the, the book as a whole is centred on this, this figure McQueen, it's not a biography. I you don't have the personal papers even if I wanted to write a biography. But it uses his ideas and outputs and their reception and consequences as a lens through which to examine a set of broader issues. Uh, and um, I mean, I, I, it's an interesting question I often ask when I talk about McQueen. Can I ask how many people have heard of him? Who's heard of James McQueen? Yeah, a couple of people. Those often people have. He, he's an interesting presence. If you pick up a book about slavery or Africa in this period, you, he'll never be. It'll never be a chapter on him. There'll never be a section. There might be a couple of paragraphs. It'll be an extended footnote. He's that kind of figure. He's a persistent but marginalised presence in the historiography of this period. And, and one of the reasons, one of the things, that, one of the ways I think about this book, in a sense, is to take all that submerged presence in the footnotes and, and put that to the top of the page. And what that does is it, it means that we think rather differently about the relationship between, for example, the debates about slavery in the Caribbean and the practices of exploring West Africa. So it kind of highlights uh, what you might think of as uh, submerged connections. The other thing to say, though, is that um, for, for McQueen's contemporaries, he certainly was a very significant figure. And uh, one of the things I try to do is to compare, compare him with, with some of his near contemporaries, uh, far more figures who, in a sense, have uh, survived history, partly by being on the right side of history in some ways. Uh, very, he's very significantly being compared with people like Mungo Park and later on David Livingstone, the explorer, as well as leading anti-slavery figures like Zachary Macaulay, who's almost an exact contemporary of his and very similar lives, actually, and indeed Thomas Fowler Buxton. And crucially, through his personal and material links to slavery, McQueen can be used to reveal the role that enslaved Africans played in this. So what I want to do then this evening is to consider uh, the central cartographic claims at the heart of McQueen's project for Africa and how these were bound up with the materialities, the ideas, the subjects and the interests arrayed around the system of Atlantic slavery. 
And in so doing, I want to elaborate the notion of captive knowledge. The notion of captive knowledge. I use this to highlight the occluded role of unfree informants in the production of geographical knowledge about Africa, but also to evoke the mutually constitutive relationship between captivity and captivation, and using this to sort of characterise European interest in Africa in this period in a way that conjoins an enlightenment search for knowledge with a romantic fascination for the unknown, this idea of captivation. Drawn from Africa and its diaspora, the resulting mapping project to which this captive knowledge was put is an exercise in transnational cartography. So, in the summer of 1820, McQueen, a fairly modest um, merchant based in Glasgow, editing a newspaper, but backed by far more affluent Glaswegian merchants, approaches the British government with a scheme to develop legitimate commerce in West and Central Africa. He fails to win support for the scheme uh, but, uh, and decides to go to the public instead and publishes uh, his, uh, one, not his first book, but his perhaps first significant book, um, which is on the top of the list there, A Geographical and Commercial View of Northern Central Africa, published in 1821. And he continues to press his ideas for Africa for the development of legitimate commerce uh, into the early 1830s until they eventually get picked up, as I said, uh, uh, later on in the late 1830s, which is something I'll come back to. Now, I'm not going to talk about the proposals themselves. They're not particularly original. They, you know, it's a kind of a combination of stamping out slavery at source, developing alternatives to the American colonies we lost, providing sustenance for the West Indian slaves by growing... Grow so it's, a kind of, it's an amalgam of, of a very sort of quite long-standing set of uh, projects and ideas uh, around, uh, for Africa that are sort of articulated in the 18th and early 19th century. And in a sense, it's, it's the synthetic qualities of the scheme that's perhaps its most original feature. But at the centre of McQueen's scheme, uh, essential to its justification, is uh, a geographical argument about the Niger, a solution to the Niger problem. Um, those of you who know African geography will be uh, will see, just realise just how wildly inaccurate this map is in many parts, um, including the kind of crazy rivers that disappear off towards the uh, eastern Sudan. However, the McQueen's primary concern, the thing that's at the centre of his argument, that's central to the justification for the scheme he proposes, this chartered West African company, is the lower course and termination of the Niger. And here, McQueen is pretty accurate. And indeed, quite he, he, interestingly, he also um, is very accurate about his estimates of the river's length, 2,600 miles, which is how long he estimates the river Niger to be, which is exactly what it is. Now, McQueen's Niger theory, this claim, um, stood in contrast with a series of other, um, uh, other ideas about the Niger at this time. The first and probably most popular is um, the so-called inland termination theory. Um, this is James Reynolds' map of 1798. Reynolds was the former surveyor general for the East India Company of Bengal, a famous uh, uh, surveyor, probably Britain's most famous geographer of the early 19th century. Now McQueen then held a particular theory about the Niger that is not was not widely accepted. He hadn't been the first to claim this. There's a German geographer, Christian Reichardt, who makes this claim before McQueen. But what is certain is that McQueen's strenuous efforts to promote this claim, and he was a publicist more than a scholar, uh, and the broader scheme to which he was attached, but also the timing of McQueen's intervention. He's intervening in a public debate about Africa at a period when British and French exploration is resuming after the Napoleonic Wars. So, you know, expeditions are beginning to go back 
the Tucky expedition, for example, of 1818. People are beginning to, uh, to, to, to return to Africa. And because of this, because of the timing in part, uh, this theory becomes uh, most associated with McQueen. The emerging British geographical establishments, represented by Reynolds and by John Barrow uh, within the government, uh, dismiss the theory. Now, why it's not taken seriously is another paper. It partly comes down bluntly to the fact that McQueen isn't a scholar and he's not a gentleman. It partly comes down to the fact that McQueen never went to these places, but that's not the impediment you might assume, uh, as I'm happy to, to talk about. It's not, you know, that's, in a sense, how why Barrow argues we shouldn't believe it because he didn't go there. But that's not as obvious a point as, as, might, uh, as might appear. Um, but what I want to talk about today instead is the sources of this theory. So where does this theory come from? Uh, and I will, by briefly, by way of conclusion, talk about where it ends up. So McQueen was inspired by the efforts of his fellow lowland Scot, Mungo Park. Born quite close to, and, and with only seven years apart from McQueen. Park, of course, had been engaged by the African Association in the 1790s. And McQueen was determined to complete Park's work by tracing the course of the River Niger to its termination. Park never managed that. He's killed uh, uh, in, in, sometime in uh, nearly 18, 1805, 1804. Um, uh, he dies on a second expedition. But McQueen had neither the opportunity nor the intention to become an African explorer, and as I said, he never went to Africa, even though he had the opportunity to do so. His geographical account instead was based on a labour-intensive process of collecting, sifting, collating and synthesising contemporary and historical accounts of African geography. He goes back to Pliny, to Herodotus, he, look, he deals with uh, Portuguese travellers, uh, medieval Arabic travellers, uh, he works all his, his way all the way up to contemporary travellers uh, and basically synthesises them. The book as a whole, the 1821 book, basically is, an arc, is a justification for this map and it kind of works its way through. You know, if we take this and we place it with this, we can match this up and this allows we can get to this bit. It's classic synthetic textual geography, which was a very common kind of practice. Now, McQueen would later be called, um, McQueen himself and, his, and similar figures to McQueen would later be described by the Victorians as an armchair geographer. Um, the Georgians don't use that term, which is interesting. We can perhaps talk about that if people want to. Um, but McQueen is a little bit different to some of those other armchair geographers in that his concerns were not purely sedentary ones. In 1797, he'd been employed on uh, Westerhall Estate in Grenada. So um, Westerhall is a, um, uh, uh, a state on the southern coast uh, of Grenada, the British West Indian colony. As a young man, he arrives there at 18 year old uh, and that's how he makes his initial fortune. And this marks the beginning of his interest in African geography. Okay, this quotation is on the handout. It's a long one. I, I, I'd like you to. Uh, I'm gonna. I would like to read it, which I know is not often good practice, but it's important and I. I it's significant, so I'm going to read this. It's the second quotation, the, the the one in the middle of the page. Off. When Mr. Park returned from his first journey, I was resident in the island of Grenada. There, I had Mandingo Negroes under my charge, who were well acquainted with the Joliba. They knew the name perfectly from hearing me pronounce it and reading Mr. Park's book. We also knew Negro who said he rode Mr. Park across the Niger. These things naturally attracted my attention, and being fond of geographical subjects, I endeavoured to collect all the accounts which I could concerning the features of the country of the Upper Niger, as well as from Negroes, as from gentlemen of my acquaintance, who had obtained their information from similar sources. Though it was scarcely possible to reduce these standing by themselves into regular order, yet connected with other accounts they became satisfactory, and formed the commencement of my labours and collections on this subject. 
Numerous authorities regarding the interesting portion of Africa have been examined with much care, and the most striking facts elicited from their pages. This investigation in the geographical department has now led to the conclusion which is now submitted to the world. Now, um, this appears in the preface to McQueen's 1821 book. The reference to Mr. Park's book, of course, was uh, Park's Travels in the Interior Districts of Africa, published in 1799, and the most influential travel account at the time, uh, exploratory account of Africa. What McQueen was describing here was the beginnings of his search for information on African geography, and specifically for a solution to the Niger problem. And to understand this noble river, he accrued knowledge not only by perusing and synthesizing textual accounts, but also by drawing information from enslaved people on his estate and those of acquaintances, as well as from personal and business contacts with uh, people associated with slave trading. He was very interested in what slave traders, people who knew the African coast, had to say about African geography. The Atlantic system of slavery underwrote not only McQueen's livelihood, but also his origins and knowledge as a geographer and enslaved subjects and their captive knowledge were vital sources of information. Now this scene, uh, this, this, this kind of moment that, that McQueen describes, appears in a diff an interestingly different form in his obituary. So this is McQueen, this is a long time, died in 1870. Sir Roderick Murchison, president of the Royal Geographical Society, uh, talks about McQueen's death. Um, I won't read this. Um, but the interesting thing about Murchison's account is it provides a little more detail. Uh, whilst reading that exciting narrative aloud to a friend one night, McQueen noticed that a Negro boy in the room stood listening very attentively, especially to those passages in which the Jollibo was mentioned. The information obtained through this intelligent boy was afterwards of great use to Mr. McQueen. He was the first, I believe, who demonstrated before the discovery was actually made that Niger emptied itself into the Bight of Benin. Subsequently, he published the Mr. Arismith, the first map of the interior of Africa. Very interesting things going on here. Um, the more I think about this, uh, I, I don't think we need to be literary scholars to realise this, this is obviously a fiction, this is incredibly fictionalised account. It's so smacks of certain forms of Victorian writing, you know, the kind of the, the moments of revelation where the, the young boy in the room sort of has the solution and this becomes an inspirational moment. It's, it, so it's fictionalised, and I think quite clear, although that itself is interesting. Also, I think significant here is this idea that this is a, a, a story that McQueen dined out on. Those of you who have attended the Royal Geographical Society, imagine the candles flickering, sitting with a glass of brandy, talking to the other fellows about this moment. There's something here about this is a story that, that explains who he is and why he thinks what he thinks. But also significant is, in a sense, one of the key outputs of this. McQueen's map uh, of 1840-1841, um, published uh, uh, in, in, various source, in various forms, one of which I'll come back to. And this map uh, in particular, and McQueen's claims about the course and termination of the Niger in general, uh, were, the, were the basis of his expertise as an African geographer. Uh, McQueen is elected to the Royal Geographical Society a few years later as a fellow. So situated in this wider context, this tale that McQueen used to relate describes a moment of origin in which his geographical imagination was stimulated, his knowledge expanded, his, his expertise and reputation founded. Now, if, a, if, the, if the obituary makes explicit the general connections between the enslaved economies of the Atlantic world and the production of geographical knowledge, it also identifies the plantation as a key site uh, where these connections were instantiated and the personal relations through which this occurred. Grenada, 
1790. This is what's before the state down here, Sir William Pulteney's estate, formerly known as Mackay, French estate. McQueen arrives there as an 18-year-old, as an overseer. This is the inventory of the plantation. Uh, those of you who know um, history of slavery, you don't get this for many estates. They often t- stay in the archives for, you know, for chance. There happens to be a legal dispute around this plantation later on, which is why this is there. This is the inventory. This is 301 names of enslaved people on the estate. This in itself is a, is a, is a very interesting document. Um, just to say one thing here. Under this, underneath the list of names of, of, of men, we have two, Jean Williams and Marcus, who are both noted as missing. Grenada, 1798, Fedon's Rebellion has just been suppressed. Fedon's Rebellion is one of those uh, Caribbean rebellions that essentially is a, a rather like that in Saint-Domingue, obviously on a much larger scale. The kind of an aftermath of the French Revolution and deliberate policies of insurgency by the French Revolutionary government, agents are sent to Grenada to stir up, and of course they are enslaved people and indeed free people of colour are inspired by the promise of the revolution, the French Revolution. McQueen arrives as they're still round, rounding up rebels. There are people still being executed in, 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 in Grenada. Um, those two men are presumed to be either dead or somehow escaped with, with the rebels. And there's something, there's a fascinating story which I haven't got time to go into here, which is about this as a moment that shapes McQueen's politics. You know, this is, this is, it, it's going into this as a young man that produces, to a large extent, someone who is negrophobic and francophobic, someone who is terrified by the French Revolution and by the danger of unfree black bodies. There's, there's, there's something quite distinct about this. Wester Hall Estate, then, was a sugar estate of around a thousand acres on Grenada's southern coast. When McQueen arrived there, there was an enslaved workforce of around 300. Presumably, it was from amongst these that McQueen acquired his first accounts of West African geography. Now, which of these may have been the Mandingo Negroes he described in his 1821 book is very difficult to determine. The names do tell you something. You can, for example, rule out the ones with French names, because they would have been Creole slaves who'd been there for some time. The ones who had English names, though, were more likely to have been imported more recently when it was a British colony. So you might find your... Uh, uh, Mandingo Negroes amongst them. Murchison's obituary, if you believe it, is more specific. It identifies a particular relationship between McQueen and a Negro boy. Uh, There are indeed 12 boys listed. Cupid, Guy, John, Johnny, Jean, Jean Jean-Baptiste, Alexis, Bartolome, Cade, Calais, Vincent and Leek. Murchison's account would suggest that the boy, the Negro boy that McQueen uh, dined out on was a prepubescent non-creole slave born in Africa taken by slave traders to the Caribbean. If so, he could have been amongst the 17,000 enslaved people imported to the island between 1785 and 1807. Again, if we believe Murchison's account, his presence in the room with McQueen and his companion, where he stood listening very attentively, suggests he was a domestic slave rather than a skilled artisanal slave or a field slave. Murchison also relates that the boy, the Negro boy, described himself as a Mandingo, like the slave people on the estate that McQueen mentioned. Uh, although that's a Mandingo is a very loose term in this period, and something I'll, I'll come back to. I think it's possible, perhaps very likely, there's a strongly fictionalised element in, Mer- at least in Murchison's account of this. But it is worth, and I, I, I just, I, I just ask you to, to bear with me for a second. It is worth just for a moment imagining this story from the perspective of 
the Negro boy, even if it's a fictional Negro boy, we might think of him as standing in for those Mandingo Negroes in general that McQueen says were a source of knowledge. From his perspective, the Joliba, the Mande word that used to refer to the upper course of the Niger, represented perhaps a lost home. So what was for McQueen a kind of a, a eureka moment may have been for this boy a moment of recall, nostalgia, loss, sorrow or anger. In this light, a comment later in the uh, 1890s that as a result of this incident, McQueen's imagination was at once taken captive by the mystery of the Great River takes on a rather darker double meaning because captive knowledge was indeed the source of McQueen's interest in this river. Now aside from the comments in the preface, McQueen makes no reference again to the contribution of enslaved people to his to solving the Niger problem if he wants. And the rest of the book is a fairly typical example of an armchair geography, textual collation and synthesis. But such was the scepticism with which the mental discoveries of armchair geographers were treated, particularly as fieldwork-based forms of geographical inquiry became increasingly dominant in this period, that McQueen provided copious references to the authorities on whom he drew. And the book basically is made up of about 350 separate references to about 60 different sources, ranging from classical authors all the way up to contemporary travellers. But there are no other references to slaves. There are no other, he doesn't, he doesn't, he makes no other references to enslaved knowledge. And one thing that, uh, sort of something I've, I've done uh, a little bit before and I'm, I'm, I'm going back into again now, is a particular interpretive strategy that would look at blanks within the web of referencing, <coughs> the bits that aren't referenced. A close reading of McQueen's book reveals gaps that we might attribute to enslaved sources. So, take this. This is um, part of the key second chapter of McQueen's book where he's laying out his theory uh, about the, the Niger's course. Um, I, won't, I won't read this, just to point out that the only named source in this section is a reference to Mollion, which was uh, Gaspar Theodore Mollion's uh, Voyage on the Tiria de l'Afrique, published in, uh, and translated in 1820. And McQueen drew heavily on Mollion. But there's one detail in Mollion's account which you can't uh, there's one detail in this account here that you can't find a source for in Mollion. So if you kind of carefully open Mollion, you can't find any information about that. The mountains hereabouts are said to be very high and are also said to be perpetually covered with snow. That is not in Mollion. So where did it come from? Well, it may have come, of course, from these other sources that McQueen doesn't uh, list, which we could speculate might include those enslaved others, those Mandingo Negroes that McQueen said were so, so well acquainted with the region. This isn't, this is not a smoking gun, I wouldn't pretend anything otherwise, although I would just draw your attention to the tone of hearsay in this passage, this highlighted section, which is very distinct from the sections around it, are said, are also said. There's a tone of hearsay which is quite distinctive. That's the second example. I'm, I'm doing more work on this at the moment to see if there's, there's more, this is essentially as good as it gets, we'll see. This passage here is about McQueen's discussion of canoes. <coughs> McQueen was very, very interested in canoes because he believed that the canoes that had been uh, that one could see on the upper course of the Niger, by had been seen by men like Park, for example, Mungo Park, were the same canoes as had been observed by merchants trading in the Gulf of Guinea, and that African people, African traders, were using them to travel up and down the Niger, which they were. 
and he wanted to show that this therefore the Niger was a, a means of commercial intercourse between the interior and the, uh, the coast. Um, now again the textual the intertextual web here is, is quite dense but again McQueen sets out his authorities that it's so we can sort of cross-reference this bit here to these other sources. So basically these are the sources that McQueen is citing. First we've got James Riley's loss of the American brig commerce. Riley was an American seaman, his ship was wrecked, he found himself in North African slavery, another kind of interesting intertwining of geographical knowledge and slavery, this time the enslavement of, Europe, of uh, uh, Europeans and Americans. Um, and he describes his travels as a slave uh, in North Africa. But also within his account, he describes the account that he is told by his master, a, a merchant called Sidi Hamid, who tells him about journeys he's been on including journeys he's made to Timbuktu. And C.D. Hammett also tells Riley about journeys that people have told him about. So you've got kind of third-hand knowledge passing down, and Riley produces all this together, and, and it becomes the basis of his book. Um, Timbuktu, as I'm sure people know, late 1810s, early 1820s, this is the craze, the Timbuktu craze, you know, the African Eldorado. There's a real interest in who can get there first. Is it really a city of uh, golden roofs and so on? Second source is Bowditch, a mission from the Cape Coast Castle to Ashanti, a very famous account produced by a, an explorer sent out by the African Committee. Uh, Bowditch was also a translator of other accounts. And thirdly, Robertson, a uh, Liverpool-based merchant who had traded most of his life on the African coast, i.e. he was a slave, former slave trader. Now, if we match McQueen's synthesis to these various sources, including Hammett's account within Riley, you can basically you can sort of cross off all the, the, the factoids within this passage if you want, apart from that, which is a, a point about the, the a particular description of the canoes, have apartments for the trader and his wives separate from the slaves and servants. Now, where might this have come from? Well, perhaps again it was from one of these other authorities that he mentions but doesn't name, which again we might speculate might have included uh, this the captive knowledge of Mandingo Negroes, or that of the Husa Negro who claimed to have rode Mungo Park across the Niger. Now, this is not, and I wouldn't pretend otherwise, that this is kind of, this is not a Eureka moment, this is not a smoking gun, this is not startling evidence. But those of you who particularly who work with um, sort of histories of slavery, slaves usually only appear in records at this time, certainly, either when they are listed as names in an inventory, when they're being counted or, number, or valued, or within what we might call the prose of the prose of counterinsurgency. In other words, when they're doing things they're not they shouldn't do, rebelling. Otherwise, they're barely there. You occasionally get sort of flashes here and there in in, in travel accounts and so on. Um, in some ways, this might be as good as it gets. Okay. So the blanks or absences in McQueen's work are suggestive, perhaps, but they certainly don't allow anything close to recovery of the geographical contribution of enslaved people. And the final kind of more general line of inquiry uh, that I want to uh, discuss uh, thirdly is would begin with McQueen's own statement. So McQueen himself says that the knowledge of enslaved people formed the commencement of my labours and collections on African geography. And then we could go on to think, well, who were these enslaved people? Who might these Mandingo Negroes have been? Where might they have come from? Why might they have been such an important source of knowledge about the geography of West Africa? Now, in the, the longer version of this paper, and in the uh, eventually the, the chapter which we all form part of, there's a, I have a broader discussion here, essentially drawing on a lot of anthropological work 
uh, here. Um, but essentially, the term Mandingo Negroes would have been used in very general terms, but we can still say something about the Mande-speaking peoples to whom the term was attached. So Mande speakers were found across West Africa, including the Mandinka, the Malinka, the Susu, the Bambara, and the Vi ethnic groups. According to Judith Carney, seven centuries of Mande Empire formation had left a pronounced legacy on the linguistic and cultural map of West Africa. In a cultural process of diffusion, the Paul Richards terms Mandinganization, Mande languages and cultural practices became widespread in West Africa before and during the era of the transatlantic slave trade. And this may have amplified the impact of Mande languages and cultural practices in the slave societies of the Americas when Mande-speaking peoples were transported via the Middle Passage. Indeed, Matt Schaffer argues that a growing body of fieldwork and anthropological studies suggests a major influx of Mandinka or Mandingo slaves pouring into the Caribbean during the slave era, and aided sometimes by their Muslim beliefs, could attain positions in slave society. And it's interesting, just at the same time McQueen is in uh, Grenada and this park is returning from West Africa, Brian Edwards' History of Jamaica is published, and Edwards has a, a, a quite a considerable passage in that where he talks about Mandingo Negroes as, as almost as like ideal domestic slaves. They're educated, they're sort of, you know, they, they seem, they're, they're kind of good for those kind of roles. Uh, and, and, you know, and it's exactly the same thing that, um, uh, in a sense, that the contemporary anthropological accounts are suggesting. Perhaps the Negro boy, if we believe Murchison's obituary, was one such. It is, of course, impossible to know exactly where the enslaved people on Wester Hall estate uh, came from, or indeed the other, world, other enslaved people whom McQueen might have spoken with. But the Mandingo Negroes that he found so enlightening were likely drawn from an educated, widely travelled population with strong oral and written traditions. And this kind of more ethno-historical approach centres the Mande-speaking peoples and locates the commencement of McQueen's labours and collections on African geography within their broader contribution to circumatlantic and transnational cultures. As uh, Matt Schaffer puts it, Mandinka cultural survivals help us to see the rich history of this particular ethnic group in a more ancient and geopolitical way, through the trade linkages of Manding across the Sahara in medieval times, to the Islamization of West Africa, and through the horrors of slavery to the Americas. We must see the Mandinka from West Africa in a greater Atlantic Rim context, in which traces from their culture show up all over the Americas. Shafarabis. So what I'm suggesting is that if we put together the three sort of tactics, uh, interpretive tactics I've, I've, I've sketched out here, we might be able to argue that traces of Mandinka knowledge, culture and history can be found within McQueen's geographical writing. Indeed, just as Shaffer talks about the mandification of the, 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 the form of English spoken in the US South, it might be interesting to consider the mandification of British geographical knowledge. By seeing McQueen's speculative but ultimately correct theory about the course of the River Niger as an example of what Judith Carney terms the transfer of an African knowledge system via slavery to the Americas. In other words, as a kind of captive transnational cartography. Okay, let me draw some conclusions. So, um, the discoveries made by Richard and John Lander in 1830, um, which solved the Niger problem, end McQueen's speculations about the Niger River. And he spends the next few years trying to win some credit. I told you so. 
uh, which doesn't go down very well and basically people say yes this is a triumph for field exploration not a triumph for triumph for sitting in a library um, and he doesn't get any credit the formal abolition of slavery in the British Empire also brought an immediate end to McQueen's anti-abolitionist activities so in a sense that big thing that he'd been doing comes to an end too yet his involvement and his entanglement with African geography and Atlantic slavery persist when his writing on Africa attracted interest from none other than Thomas Fowell Buxton, the abolitionist leader. Now Buxton had taken over from Wilberforce in 1823 to become the parliamentary leader of the British anti-slavery campaign. By 1837 Buxton had turned his attention to uh, foreign slave trades and, and, and slavery in Africa itself. Buxton had been the target of some of, most, of, of McQueen's most vitriolic attacks in the 1820s and early 1830s. Uh, attacks that were so vitriolic that they end, uh, McQueen ended up in court, uh, effectively a libel brought against him for, for kind of similar vitriol poured at the at humanitarians. But Buxton comes to the conclusion in, in the late 1830s that the British strategy of trying to suppress slave, the slave trade through uh, diplomatic uh, uh, through deals with, with uh, slaving, enslaving nations and also um, the blockade, the naval blockade. Basically this is costly and this is ineffective. What we need to do is attack slavery of source. And what he's inspired in this idea by reading none other than McQueen's A Geographical and Commercial View, the book of 1821. And it's very interesting, in Rhodes House there is Buxton's notes that he took on McQueen's thing where you can basically see him going you know, page 17, crucial point here, we must do this. And you can see Buxton essentially uh, uh, taking these ideas from the Queen. And this forms the basis uh, for an approach that Buxton makes to McQueen, and the two men work together in the summer of 1837, I think it is, uh, on uh, a plan on a book, uh, that uh, uh, two books, The African Slave Trade and Its Remedy, published in 1840, that eventually becomes the basis for the Niger Expedition of 1841-42, which anyone who knows African history in this period is a complete disaster, a total disaster. Now, McQueen's contribution that's uh, his acknowledged contribution to this uh, uh, expedition is this map. This map appears in a slightly different form within Buxton's account. This African map, uh, which in a sense is the product of enslaved knowledge, becomes the basis of the geographical argument and the basis for Buxton's scheme of 1841-42. And indeed, McQueen is invited to join the African Civilization Society. This collaboration then was a remarkable turnaround for these two adversaries, but, but crucially it also represents a suitable end point for an examination of a chain of transatlantic relationships that linked the Caribbean, Britain and Africa. Geographical knowledge acquired from enslaved people captivated McQueen as a young plantation overseer in Grenada, prompting the commencement of his labours and collections on African geography, and was published in his 1821 book uh, and elsewhere. The book was read by Buxton, who used it and McQueen's general expertise on Africa to develop a strategy aimed at ending the Atlantic slave trade and slavery in Africa. Mungo Park's encounters with slavery in Africa in the 1790s and his geographical writing also extend this chain of relations backward as they too captivated McQueen. Another link in this chain is the early life of the intelligent Negro boy if he existed, who recognised the familiar but lost places of home when McQueen read aloud from Park's account in the Caribbean, 
and indeed the lives of those other nameless Mandingo Negroes who were to suffer the Middle Passage and enslavement in Grenada before being compelled to serve as McQueen's geographical informants. James McQueen then, who went from being a West Indian overseer to an authority on Africa, illuminates a knot of transnational relations binding geographical knowledge in slavery, cartographic representation, that which captivates, and those who are held captive. Thank you.